All right, so, um, you know Christmas is 10 days away. So I figured it probably would be appropriate to pause Luke and talk about Christmas. What do you think of that? Okay. And um, so let's think about Jesus. And I want to ask you a question. Or, or if, you were to ask, if you were to go out and do a man-on-the-street interview and ask people this question, when did Jesus live? I think most people would say, well, about 2,000 years ago, he was born in Bethlehem. He lived some 30-plus years. He died in 33 A.D. So there's the history of Jesus. Now, what, what I would say is, while that's a very brief history of Jesus' earthly life, the Bible actually tells us that his life history is just a smidgen longer than that. Okay? It goes back to eternity, and it continues into eternity. Okay? So... Um, the title of today's message is this, A Brief Eternal History of Jesus. Right? And um, while, while you go, well, this isn't like three practical ways to have a calm Christmas, what, what this is, is, is it, it may blow your mind when it comes to how you think about God and Jesus which is actually far more practical than a how to have a more calm Christmas. A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So, so we're going to talk about Christ's eternity past, his Old Testament past, his incarnation, which is what we think about when we think about Christmas, him coming to earth as a baby, and then his eternity future. And don't worry, they're not all the same length. The last one is like that, okay? But uh, let's begin by thinking about Christ's eternity past. And I want to take us to um, a rather interesting passage to get us thinking about this. Jesus in John chapter 8, is speaking to some Jewish people. And he says this, Your father, Abraham... Now, now to get this right, <clears throat> I've realized not everybody understands the timeline here. So, how many years earlier did Abraham live in relationship to Jesus? Anybody know? Shout out a number. 2,000. Okay. So we're talking 2,000 years before Jesus is Abraham. Okay? So your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it. So Abraham saw Jesus. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? You're talking about Abraham seeing you and you seeing Abraham, and you're not 50. How old was Jesus when he was crucified? Anybody want to guess? 
Ah, you see, we all think 33, don't we? But they got his birth wrong. He was born, what, 6 AD? 6 BC? 4 to 6 BC. So he was crucified in 33. So let's add 4. 34, 35, 36, probably 37 when he was crucified. That's first mind blow there, right? Okay. But, but he's saying, um, he saw my day. Abraham saw my day. They said, you're not even 50. How could you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, and proper grammar would assume that he's going to say, before Abraham was, I was. Right? Now, if he had said that, that still would have been claiming that he has been around for 2,000 years, which is an outrageous claim. Okay? But he doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. He says before Abraham was, I am. And I'm sure there was some school teacher in the audience saying, improper tense, Jesus. Right? Now, why does he say, before Abraham was, I am. Well, he's claiming to be God. Remember when Moses speaks with God at the burning bush, and God says, hey, you're going to set Israel free. He goes, um, well, who should I say sent me? And God says, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Right? So before Abraham was... I am is claiming, yes, I was there in the time of Abraham because I'm God. Now, there are some people who interpret this passage and they go, no, 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 you're reading into it. That's whatever he means, he's not claiming to be God. Well, his hearers sure thought he was claiming to be God because look at their reaction. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They sure thought he was claiming a blasphemous claim that he was God. Okay? Now, John, the writer of this gospel, confirms that this is a proper interpretation when you go to the first chapter. In the first chapter, he's talking about Jesus here. And he says the word, that's another name for Jesus, became flesh. So whatever this word is, he becomes flesh means a human. He's talking about the coming of the word in human form and dwelt among us. So this verse tells us that the word is Jesus. Okay? Now the very first sentence begins like this. In the beginning was the Word. So in the beginning, before, remember the Bible begins with in the beginning. So it begins with God when there's no creation. Here John is taking us back. In the beginning, before anything was created, was the Word, Jesus. And then it says, and the Word was with God. So if this is God and this is the Word, to be with means there's a, a distinct identity here. There's the Word and there's the Father. There's God. 
and they're with each other. And then the Word was God. Right? And, and we go, wait a minute. How, how can someone both be someone else and be that person at the same time? That just doesn't make sense. Well, um, we try to make sense of that by calling that the Trinity. There's only one God, but he's three persons. Three distinct persons make up one God, and each of them is fully God, and each of them is a distinct person. Okay. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time trying to explain um, how the Trinity works. You know why? I don't know. This is one of these things that you... Um, it's funny, I think we, we Americans have an easier time accepting the Trinity than we have understanding the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. We go, if God is sovereign, man is not free, and if man is free, God is not sovereign, that can't be, I, can't, I will not tolerate this. And we're, we're stuck with that because I think it involves us. But just as mind-blowing is one God, three persons. Three persons, one God. And we go, yeah, it's the Trinity. I was raised with that. No problem. Okay. But, but here's what I want you to think about. Um, now, there was a, uh, at Moody, they have a, a missions conference. And this year, they brought in a, a guy named Michael Reeves um, to speak about the Trinity during missions week. And I thought, why would he do that? And then uh, after the, the week after he spoke, everybody was like, oh, Michael Reeves was so awesome. What did he speak about? The Trinity. I'm like, what, well, what was so mind-blowing? So everybody said, read the book. You know what I did? I didn't read the book. I downloaded a summary of the book. All right, now, Reeves asks this question. What was God doing for eternity before creation? What do you think God was doing? And whether you think God created 6,000 years ago or 15 billion years ago or a trillion, however old you think creation is, you've got to remember that before creation... God had existed for how long? Eternity. What was he doing all that time? Now, Reeves says this, and this is why he spoke at a missions conference. Because we don't talk about the Trinity enough, most people, when they think of God, and when they they think of God in eternity, have this picture of God as this... uh, Lonely person floating around in the darkness. Kind of like a supercomputer in the darkness. And Reeves says, here, here, I want you to think about the eternal God this way. He says, first of all, there's only one attribute where God is described as being that attribute himself. God is love. And he says this, God could not be love if there were nobody to love. Think about that. If the definition of love 
is giving of yourself to someone else. And if you think of God as this one solo person floating around in the darkness, he's not loving because there's no one else to love. Therefore, because we don't emphasize the Trinity, many people, even Christians, have this view of God as this cold, loveless computer, a big laptop floating in the darkness. Okay? He, he goes on to say this, How can a solitary God be eternally and essentially loving when love involves loving another? The truth is that God is love because God is a trinity. In other words, the trinity is a community, a family of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, intimately loving one another. What was God doing for eternity before creation? He was perfectly, deeply satisfied in this love relationship between the persons of the Trinity. Now, what that tells you is he has always been love. Why does he create? Some people go, well, God created because he was lonely. Like some people are alone, they need a dog or they need a cat, so God needed people because, no! He, you know what? If God never created, he would be perfectly satisfied in his uh, love relationship within the Trinity. He created not out of need, but out of love so he could draw us into that loving relationship. Here's a really profound verse. In John 17, 24, Jesus prays for you and me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, there's some election involved in this verse, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because, now look at this, you loved me before the foundation of the world. I'm praying that this love that we have shared for eternity, by the way, there's a, a certain uh, theological heresy out there. It's called oneness theology. It says there's only one God and one person at a time. The three Persons of the Trinity, they would say, never coexisted. It's the Father became the Son and the Son became the Holy Spirit. There's only one God and one person at a time. No, no, no. Jesus here says, you loved me. Again, two people before the foundation. What, what, what was Jesus and God the Father and the Holy Spirit doing for eternity? Loving one another. And this verse says, Jesus' desire is to bring us into that deeply fulfilling love relationship that the Trinity has experienced for all of eternity. Okay, Now, why is this important for how we talk about God and think about God and even do missions? Right? Here's what Reeves says. If God is not Father, Son, and Spirit, then he is eminently rejectable. A mono-God is not an appealing God. Sorry, Islam. Right? Sorry, uh, 
even atheists, the, the God they're rejecting is usually the supercomputer floating in the dark. Okay? He's rejectable without love, radiance, or beauty. He's not a beautiful God. He, without radi- radiance means he wants to share that love and his beauty. Okay? Who would want such a God to have any power or even to exist? But the triune living God of the Bible is beauty, Here is a God we can really want and whose sovereignty we can wholeheartedly rejoice in. So, we've we've taken a little step back into eternity past. Jesus existed for eternity along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, Spirit radiating forth love for one another and they created us and saved us to enter into that eternal love And that thought should rock your world. If not, your mind is is elsewhere. Okay. How was that, Josh? Did I did I represent that well? Okay. Did I miss anything? Well, you just read the summary, so a lot of the book. A lot of the book, but yeah. (laughs) So is the book better than the summary? Really? Josh is actually thinking of maybe going to England to study under this guy, right? Maybe. I don't know. I, personally, I think if you have a British accent, you sound a lot smarter than you are. But, you know, it could be he actually understands things about God, right? So, so now God creates the world and man, okay? And Jesus actually has a past in the Old Testament. There's eternity past. Now there's, there's uh, the Old Testament. Remember back in the John passage, John 8 passage, uh, it says, the, the Jews say, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus says Abraham saw it. He saw my day. And they said, well, you're, you're not even 50 When did Abraham see you? Do you know there's an incident in the life of Abraham where he talks with God who's a man. Okay, Here in Genesis 18, and the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. The oaks of Mamre, that's in... uh, uh, Hebron, you can go to this place today. There's actually an oak tree, and they say that's the oak of, of Mamre, which, uh, you know, I don't think oaks last 4,000 years, but go with it, okay? But, but the Lord talks to Abraham in this specific location on the earth, okay? He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men we're standing in front of him. Now you go, oh, are those, is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? No. Two of the men are angels, and they're the ones who go to Sodom and the whole Sodom and Gomorrah thing happens. But one of them stays back and talks with Abraham. Okay? Three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, um, here's what happens. First of all, the Lord says, by the way, uh, Sarah, who's 90 next year, she's going to have a baby. And then you hear laughter in the tent. 
And God said, did you laugh? And you go, no, I didn't laugh. She lies. Okay. But then um, the two angels go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Oh, and by the way, they prepare this huge banquet for the angels and Jesus. This is Jesus. Okay. And then um, the Lord has a little conversation with Abraham. He says, I'm going to nuke Sodom and Gomorrah. Didn't use those words, but you get the idea. And Abraham thinks, oh no, but my, my nephew Lot, he's in, he, he's in Sodom. And he's worried about the destruction of his family. So he says, Lord, can I, can I ask you a question? If there were 50 righteous people in that city, would you spare it? And, and Jesus says, yeah, I would, I would spare it. And then, then Abraham goes, 45. He goes, yeah, 45. 40. 30. It's like an auction, all right? It talks him down to 10. Right? Now, what in the world is going on there? This is a picture of God in the form of a man speaking with Abraham, discussing his sovereign plans with him, listening to him, and interacting with Abraham, responding to him. It's a picture of a God who cares, who interacts, who responds to prayer. Okay? But that's not the only place we see this man who is the Lord. You know, in the Garden of Eden, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God's a spirit. He doesn't walk unless he's a man, many people think that it was Jesus walking in the Garden of Eden. You know where else we see Jesus? Abraham has a son, Isaac. Isaac has two children, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the chosen one, but he's, uh, he's kind of a scoundrel. And he comes to himself one night when he's, he's just... At a, at, he thinks his brother's going to kill him, and he's just stressed out. And a man appears, and they wrestle, MMA wrestle, all night long. And it looks like Jacob is winning, and this man touches the hip socket. And his hip goes out of joint. And, and I get this picture that, you know, it's like a father wrestling with his toddler and sometimes he lets the toddler win and pin him but then at the end he scoops him up and carries him over his shoulder like I could have killed you the whole time right um, and Jacob then realizes he can't fight against God and then he clings on to him and says bless me bless me I can't do this anymore by myself bless me I believe that's what's going on here but then Jacob says this. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. He saw God face to face when he wrestled with this man. It was Jesus. Where else do we see him? Remember, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fiery furnace. 
And Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and they're not burning up and there's not three, there's four. I think that's a picture of Jesus protecting them and delivering them. You know where else we see Jesus? You know, in John chapter 12, Jesus, or actually John, quotes from Isaiah 6. And he says Isaiah saw him. Who? Jesus. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision of the Lord high and lifted up. And the angels are flying around and they can't even look at Him because He's so holy, holy, holy. There we see Jesus revealing His glory and His holiness. So, what do we learn about the Old Testament appearances of Jesus? He wants to be with man. He wants to reveal who He is to man. Now, I think we can become so accustomed to God revealing Himself because we study the Bible. It's all about God. Well, he didn't have to reveal Himself. He didn't have to show up and wrestle with Jacob. He didn't have to give us a written book. He didn't have to go into the fiery furnace. But I think it shows us that He's a God of revelation. He's a God who cares enough about man that he's intimately involved with us. He's not afraid to have conflict with man or to wrestle with man, but he shows his glory, his holiness. He blesses, he protects. He is Emmanuel, God with us. But then we move into the third stage of the eternal history of Jesus, which we call the Incarnation. The incarnation is God becoming a human. Now, what's the difference? All right, if I were teaching a class, I would say, what's the difference between his Old Testament appearances? We call those Christophanies, special Old Testament appearances of Jesus. What's the difference between a Christophany and the incarnation? The answer is... Josh? No, just kidding. Um, (laughs) um, Old Testament Christophanies were temporary, sometimes just a few minutes. Okay, They were temporary taking on of human flesh or human appearance. Okay, The incarnation, on the other hand, is the eternal taking on of actual human nature from the point of conception to development in the womb to birth to being a child going through all the stages of human development not elderliness though, right? Um, And even dying. Think about this. At the moment of conception, Jesus, who had eternally existed without a human nature, now eternally takes on a human nature. Why? 
Well, because he cares enough about mankind to be a mediator. Oop, I don't have the verse. First uh, Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It says he was, he was the man Christ Jesus. Well, we've already established he's God, but he's also man. To be our substitute, he needed to be a real human. A goat or a bull or an animal doesn't pay the price. Okay? To be our substitute, he needed to be perfect. He needed to be God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, let me show you a Christmas verse. You might not think about, might not think about it as a Christmas verse. And I think we're going to focus on this on Wednesday night, right? Philippians 2. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, Je- which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God. Now, don't take that word form to mean just a fake mask. Okay? Because it goes on to say, though he was in the form of God, he did not... Ca- count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So the form of God, whatever it is, means he was equal with God. Um, what it, that's one of the strongest verses for the deity of Christ. He was equal with God, existing in the form of God. We could translate it the nature of God. Okay, But empty himself. Now, question, what in the world does that mean? What does it mean that he emptied himself? By taking the form, there's that same word, the nature of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Okay? And being found in human form, human nature, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. How did he empty Himself. Now, some people have thought, well, he left behind his godness. He left behind his deity. That's how he emptied himself, and he just became a man, maybe with some attributes of deity, but he left the rest behind. That can't be. Then he's not God. If he's fully God, and fully man, he has all the full attributes of God and all the full attributes of man. So how did he empty himself? Let's quote Grudem here. He did not do it, empty himself, by giving up any of his attributes, but rather by taking the form of a a servant. That is, by coming to live as a man and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Thus, the context itself interprets this emptying as equivalent to humbling himself. Emptying is humbling himself and taking on a lowly status and position. Thus, the NIV, instead of translating the phrase he emptied himself, translated, but made himself nothing. The emptying includes change of role and status, 
not the essential, essential attributes or nature. So what is this saying? Jesus, the baby in the manger, truly is helpless as to his human nature. But at the same time, that same person, Jesus, as to his divine nature, still contains all the omnis. He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, and he's omnipresent. He is um, omnipotent. He is upholding the universe while he's a helpless baby in the manger. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing and all-wise, while to his human nature, here's what he's thinking, goo-goo-ga-ga. And while he's limited to a manger, a baby in a diaper, he is omnipresent all over the entire universe. You go, I can't, I can't fit that in my little brain. That's the point. I want your Christmas not to be nice and tight. I want your brain to be dribbling out your ears, okay? That's kind of gross. All right, one last thing. What about his eternity future? Now, um, here's what I want you to get. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, did he rise from the dead in a human body? Thank you. Some of you are like, I don't know, maybe it was a ghost. No, it was a human body, right? When he ascended into heaven, did he ascend into heaven in a human body? Yes, very good. When he returns, will he return in a human body? Yes. When he returns and recreates the heavens and earth and walks with us on the new heaven and the new earth, will he be in a human body? How about this? Is he in a human body right now? Yes. Right? What's mind-blowing is this. At the moment of conception, the eternal person of the Trinity named Jesus forever changed by taking on humanity and he will for the rest of eternity exist as a man. Fully God, fully man. But that, that actually that moment of conception changed the Godhead for eternity. And, and our response should be this. As the psalmist says in Psalm 8, 4, what is man? that you are mindful of him. Here, he's blown away that God just thinks about us. We should be blown away that God becomes one of us. So, what's the takeaway? When we think about his eternity past, think about the fact that his essential nature is love. When you think about his Old Testament past, 
Think about the fact that he desires to dwell with man. When you think about his incarnation, he eternally changed the Godhead. And when you think about eternity future, he will dwell with us as the God-man. He is Emmanuel, God with us. All right, let's pray. Lord, I just ask that you would expand our minds. And while you were that helpless little baby in the manger, forgive us for limiting you to just that little baby in the manger. And may our hearts be full of worship this Christmas as we see you for who you truly are, Emmanuel, God with us.